Southside Worldwide. Er digitach is er erstes is shinya glad radio. Testemion el an el glad radio. Los sonidos del comunidad Southside desiderio glad. Southside Community Sounds. Cifra vam formate i pozaprosu. Mai glad radio. You're listening to a glad radio podcast. I have I have a worry about this loaf because I've lost the sell by tag. Yeah. No, I've, I've lost the use by tag, which means that now it's all visual and memory. <laughs> I only work visually with food. Do you? Mm-hmm. See, I, I, I've noticed that some supermarkets... They should go in, by the way. ...have, <laughs> have stopped... They've stopped putting use by dates in eat, eat by or whatever. Yeah, best Tesco's by. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that you, you, you basically just have your own your own guide, which means that there's an entire variety, there's a spectrum out there now of of people eating potatoes with massive sprouts. Sprouts on them. Just yeah. cut them off. And and other people yeah, who always just shave them off. Other people who after a couple of days have already chucked them out, even though they're perfectly edible. So I, I just wonder what's happening out there now. It's it's, 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 it's the Wild West. My nana used to take my hand if I was like, there's mould in that and she'd be like, Sugar, stop it. And she would like <laughs> scrape it off, and then <laughs> listen. See, see if you're gonna if if you're gonna do potatoes and Paul's in the house, you've got it. You could just and they're a wee bit past it. You just, you just, you just gotta like hide them. That's the first thing. Get a knife, cut off the bad bits, and make sure they're not black inside. Uh, to be honest, after that, it's fine. Fine. There's a really good wee um, new uh, attempt to stop waste on the side of some like yogurts and. Other perishables like that, and it's a we look, smell, taste thing, and it's got a wee eye and it's got a wee nose. But they've managed to like do a drawing of a tongue that is so accurately of something tentatively just dipping into. It's oh like dear. it's just this tongue like sticking out as if you're about to dip it in some rancid yogurt. <laughs> it's it's quite a <laughs> it's quite an evocative wee like triptych in the side of yogurt <laughs> like. Yogurt's a clear one. I know, I know. If you if your nose isn't working and then you dip your tongue in it, and... I've only just found sell by dates on toiletries. Yeah, so apparently like twelve, yeah, 12 months from opening. No, I know. I think I, mean, I think I've got moisturisers as old as my sister. <laughs> <laughs> and they still, they still, they're still applied liberally. You're, you're still using <laughs> them. Yeah, I mean, if it doesn't kill you, it's fine, right? Yeah. The green flaky skin thing doesn't. That's fine, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've got a kind of makeup, makeup thing that uh, I don't know what color the tube is anymore because it's so old. It's, it's. I still use that. It's changed in color. It's vintage. Yeah, it's vintage. It's vintage. Still using that. It's <laughs> ecologically sound as it well. Is no eco- waste. I think it's all about sustainability. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Five year old mascara. What's wrong? My God. Yeah. <laughs> Necrosis is a small place to be. And welcome to Still Doing the Music, yeah. A new podcast that will hopefully give you, the listener, an insight into parts unfamiliar. There are plenty of podcasts that talk about the music and the process, and we will chat about that. But we're also going to talk around the music and shine a light in the bits that don't get discussed so often. We're not going to bore you about spreadsheets and heavy lifting. Although there is a lot of that. We're going to talk to objectively successful artists and find out how they cope with a constantly changing industry. How they cope with having to be an accountant. An influencer. Blech. And a manager amongst many other things on top of making music in one way or another. How they cope with the constant devaluation of recorded work and the harsh realities of touring. And how they juggle their other jobs and roles to literally survive as an artist today. 
Today's guest is a true triple threat, a founder of a label that helped propel some of Scotland's most critically acclaimed and successful artists into the limelight, a songwriter from and founding member of one of this country's most beloved indie bands, and a solo artist with three post-Elgado's LPs to date will it leave the listener no doubt as to the innate talent contained within. She grew up in Castle Douglas and railed against her parents' trad jazz leanings, consuming a diet of contemporary pop that shines through on her own work. Clearly missing having arguments with people holding instruments in windowless rooms on industrial estates and in railway arches, she co-founded Scottish supergroup The Burns Unit in 2006. Advocate for open discussions around mental health, she established the Fruit Tree Foundation project with Rod Jones in 2009. Please prick up your ears for board game enthusiast, cerebral lyricist and certified guitar shredder, Emma Pollock. So Emma, still, still doing, doing the music, music eh? <laughs> Wow. <clears throat> I wish people knew how long that took us. To get... That's fantastic. <laughs> wow. Are you doing the music? I am. Good. <laughs> some, of the, some of the time. End of podcast. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Emma. Uh, so you were at the bandstand last night, weren't you? I was. I was supporting Billy Bragg, which was absolutely lovely. Uh, I, I, once the rain stopped. Mm-hmm. Did you manage to avoid the, most of the downpours? My sound check was um, was during a, an absolute pouring pouring rain uh, moment, and to, to such an extent that the sound engineer couldn't hear us. <laughs> wow! <laughs> oh God! <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that's quite something. Eh? Must be quite intense watching the the rain cascade down all of those empty steps towards the stage. As oh well. yeah, yeah, and and someone at the edge constantly mopping. Yeah, yeah. How was the show? It was. It was. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, because of the pandemic, I haven't actually played um, consistently for quite a long time. Um, And so I'd only really played one show that was my own um, since the pandemic. Um, And and this, this was far enough on from that one to be nervous all over again. Because, you know, when, when, when you don't have that momentum... It's less easy to just step up and do it because the nerves begin to creep back in. Um, so there was quite an intensive period of like a few weeks rehearsal for me personally, and then I met with my cellist Pete, Pete Harvey, the wonderful Pete Harvey, for one rehearsal, and then that was it. We just turned up and, and went for it, and it yeah, it went really well. But um, I, I I always have to beat myself up about something. That's just par for the course. So <laughs> so I forgot to introduce myself. Didn't sell any merch whatsoever, and uh, and came away thinking hmm. Even though it went really well, <laughs> and I think the audience, I think the audience reaction was was great, really lovely. Mm-hmm. But um, oh, do you know, at the end of the day, it's funny when you do support because you're reminded that everyone forgets mostly about the support as soon as the main act comes on, which is exactly as it should be. So I sat, I joined the crowd. Don't see that. Well, <laughs> oh well, it's, it's yeah, I know, but it's it's. I think in reality, that's that's kind of what sometimes happens. That, um, I sat down in, in the crowd to watch Billy Bragg and then promptly turned my dinner over on my knee and, uh, oh. and, it, and at least three people came forward with tissues and wet wipes so that was that was a moment and still didn't buy merch how dare still I didn't buy merch <laughs> <laughs> See, seeing you need a replacement dinner and then not financially accommodating I know uh-huh. how dare they um, so yeah how was um, how was Billy's set oh it was it was fantastic it really was I mean um, he's he's just such a he's he's a really he's a truly great performer. Um, 
and the passion, you know, with and the humour with which he kind of speaks in between the songs as well is 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 just fantastic. First first time I've actually seen him, and then he, of course he played in New England at the end, which I have very strong memories of standing on a chair with a hairbrush singing along to that <laughs> when I was when I was a, a kid, I mm-hmm. was um, probably twelve or thirteen, and thinking, wow, this is one of the greatest things I've ever heard, and it still is one of the greatest songs. Um, I I really like his presence on on Twitter because he's quite dignified in as much as um, Twitter and Facebook, well, social media seems to kind of melt people over a certain age's brain, whereas he's, all of his tweets seem to be kind of still reasonable and kind of, he actually kind of politely discusses things going, well, perhaps that's not the case, uh, rather than, you know, like so many of his peers, uh, indulging in sharing Minions memes that are actually... Um, Anti-vaccine sentiment. <laughs> this is why I'm going to swiftly be ditching social media. I'm already halfway there. I can't stand it. Yeah, I'm terrible with it. Yeah, I hate it. I mean, if you if you want to, I think I actually said this last night. If you want to, if you want to meet your grave earlier, just 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 dive into Twitter for for a few hours. See, um, I, I like your Twitter on... presence though. Uh, you're 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 kind of like. Um, you don't tweet that much, but no. then uh, if Andy Murray's playing the tennis, then you just start um, really getting into <laughs> to tennis. And I think that's quite a wholesome way to use it, <laughs> just broadcasting your opinions on, on tennis and not yeah. interacting with the sewer that is the Twitter feed. Yeah, there is, there is, yeah, there is, there is that kind of, I think, I don't know, I think, I think is, I think they, that there's a real art to actually being able to, to tweet in a way that that's worthwhile, because unfortunately, ninety percent of tweets that are out there are, are kind of pretty, pretty unnecessary. And I think that that's, <laughs> yeah. that's part of pretty unnecessary. And the, the other the other ten percent of them are extremely angry. And, and yeah. <laughs> or no, maybe it's the other way around. Sorry. Yeah. I think they're yeah. not mutually yeah. exclusive. No, no, you're quite right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you feel the need to promote like gigging and stuff like that on social media? Do you? play into that kind of necessary evil or that's what it's been called by a few people that we've interviewed social media as a necessary evil to the music industry at the moment do you feel the need to use it in conjunction with music yeah I do and I think that I'm extremely shy of self-promotion I find it very um quite unnatural I'm not very good at self you know propelling my own career I'm I'm pretty pretty rubbish at it to be quite honest I think I'm I'm, I'm quite backwards and in, in pushing um it, it, it feels quite it feel it, it almost feels like the opposite of why I wanted to get into music which is to kind of create a private space to create music and to know what it feels like to sing and to know what it feels like to to um to to write a song which is a very very singular experience and something that's very special and when you're reminded of other people's music and read about other people writing songs you're reminded of the magic involved in all of that and how chords and lyrics and voice and all of those things put together can create something utterly unique and bewildering and powerful and all those things and then you realize you have to start shouting about it and yeah. i just feel that i'm not terribly good at that because I think I'm probably privately quite nervous of people just going, nah, nah, I don't think so. 
<laughs> and just and just and just going and listening to to something else instead, which is which is of course statistically what must happen because we we must share the the globe with with so many other people doing the same thing as us, and it's hard to compete, and that we have to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's complex, mm. really. Well, even just making a, a a record in the first place and putting it out without involving social media is a very like anyone does that, there's a cert- certain amount of bravery in it because you're going, here is something that I've created and here is something that I think is very good and I think you should listen to. And yeah. I think that's a very inherently kind of unscottish thing to do. It's like, look, I've made something I'm proud of and then people are like, don't get above your station. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's an element of self-effacement um, I suppose, which which goes with some of the the Scottish psyche, um, but I mean, it takes me increasingly long periods of time to actually put out a solo record. Now I can blame the pandemic for some of that. I can also blame literally Andy Murray and Andy <laughs> Tennis for some of that. Some of it. I can also blame Lego for some of it. <laughs> I can blame raising my son for some of it, but none of these are all the reasons why. I, I just have a a really kind of um, difficult relationship with furthering my own career because I find it much easier to sit and manage a studio, Ken 19, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, because to concentrate so much on myself all of the time, I think that's I, a, a very, that's a, just a bucket full of stress. Yeah. You know, I much, much prefer um, managing other people. As soon as I have to concentrate on myself, it all gets a bit gooey. Mm. And a bit, a bit difficult, terribly exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get that. One, one of the things that social media seems to have swung towards, especially in the last couple of years over the pandemic, where everyone has been essentially living in their own bubbles and silos, is a, an almost demand for oversharing and a demand for um, getting into your your personal space more than before and I think I was really it was really interesting the way that you were going about promoting your last record um, In Search of Harpfield with quite a personal story and um, I wonder uh, and uh, you t- you've spoken about the, the kind of inspiration behind the songs and, and quite another few things so like I mean I don't want you to necessarily go into that again if you <laughs> can't be arsed but I mean that seems to be quite a, um, given that it was like six years ago now, that, that was quite a traditional and almost kind of boundaried way to share that story. Like, have you noticed kind of a swing towards people demanding more kind of, well, give us more personal information, give us more kind of uh, information about your past? That's a really interesting thing. I, I think that the, I think one thing I have noticed is that I'm, as we get older as performers, we are a bit more comfortable with chatting to the audience about about honest things, and we don't necessarily feel as as uncomfortable with that as we might have when we were twenty five. Because I mean, I do remember when the Delgados were together, Alan and I both being front people, if you like, and songwriters. We found that we 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 found that quite difficult. Who was going to talk, and did we want to talk at all? And if one of us spoke, were we representing the four of us? So I think we 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 did worry about that a lot, which meant that. We quite often wear that shambling, you know, um, staring at our feet indie band that basically played the songs and then went home. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of interaction. Whereas as soon as I became a solo artist, 
I gradually got to the point where I spoke far too much. Um, and uh, I quite like that, though. Not everyone does, um, depending on your school of thought. It, yeah. I mean, Billy Bragg did an awful lot of chat last night, but it was absolutely perfect because that's what people expected from him. He, he's a guy who is a commentator on a lot of, you know, our lives and society and especially right now that that feels really necessary um but interestingly you know yeah in search of harperfield was written in the context of my mum being extremely ill and then passing away and and since then i've lost my dad and that was harder because it was it was an accident it was it was it was really sudden and it suddenly one one day he was there and the next he simply wasn't and that, that's a very different type of loss in a way. And funnily enough, I've never, ever tweeted about it. Not once. I've never mentioned it on social media. Um, I think there are things that some... I don't know. I think, yeah, there is a tendency for people now to share with the world because it, it helps comfort them. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to keep it private. I wanted to keep it manageable. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to... I just didn't want to encourage any more contact about it because it would have been too difficult. But I probably will um, maybe talk about it in the future mm -hmm. with the next album coming out. Um, yeah, because, I mean, it's part of the reason why it's been so long in, in the making. Yeah. 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 I think um, that people who have maybe grown up with social media find it more more of a comfort to share things like that because they share everything else but certainly I, I feel like that I try to keep a very very sharp line between personal and me clowning about going come to this gig you know I, I don't I'm a yeah I'm a private person and I would if I put anything too personal on there I'd be like am I milking this sad feeling or something for retweets or clout and I think that's just because I grew up before social media, like the first social media didn't really appear till I was 20, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I get, I, I just, I find social media really complex for like a number of reasons. I think at the moment there's almost a, I don't know, I think people feel that they've got immediate and instant access to you at all times. Like, I get work through social media, which keeps me tied to being on those platforms. Do I get a lot of work from social media? No, because I don't engage with the platforms. Am I too frightened to leave them? Yes, in case I miss out on work. But social media makes me beyond anxious. But it's such a thief of, t thief of time. I can't. I find myself checking it for the work that doesn't come in and then scouring through, passing a hundred people and being like, oh, I've not worked with them. I couldn't do a gig for them. I missed messages from them and just breeds this cloud of deep, deep anxiety. And I've, that's it, two hours have passed and I've been stuck in it. Mm. And then, oh, I'm doing my friend's gig, I'm meant to post about it. And I can't. I find it almost completely paralysing. Yeah, and there's so many platforms now that quite often you get to the stage where someone's messaged you and you don't know how they did it. And mm. you and you spend you, you can spend it. an hour trying to search through all the different was it was it text? Was it was it was it WhatsApp? Was it 
was it Facebook? Was it Messenger? Was it? And then I realised one day that somebody had actually been contacting me through Skype chat, and I didn't even know that such a thing existed. Wow. Yeah. And so it, it it and then and then you've got traditional voicemail. I, do you know what I find these days, which I I, I, I find kind of quite remarkable? Nobody really wants to pick up the phone anymore. I used to be like that. I can hand on heart say that if somebody phoned me and I looked at it, I would watch it ring out and put it down and think, how dare they phone me during my day? Why not just drop me a bloody text or be like a normal person? Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. I don't want to text or anything like that. I'm quite like, just phone me. A uh, voice note me, that's it, done. Do well, it. well the, vo- the voice note's a really interesting one, isn't it? That... Some like I've I've had a few of them. It's like a it's like a live it's it's like a kind of even more present voicemail, isn't it? Because it's you a can live s- stream of course. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's it's it's, it's there's a, it's got a different nature to an actual voicemail. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's very it's odd. I feel quite self conscious doing them because I feel like Alan Partridge <laughs> with his dictaphone in his hotel room. Oh yeah. So, uh-huh. Well Charlotte, um back to tonight at six, do you want a coffee? <laughs> so, <laughs> Whereas, um, I love it because I can be in the I car, know. I can press play. Cool, I've got that. That's fine. Yeah. Right, I can go to the next place. But I mean, I'm generally completely useless with my phone. I I th- I, I do find myself apologising if I phone anyone. It's like nothing's wrong. Don't worry. It's just just thought it should be quicker. You know, when you actually physically wow. phone someone because mm-hmm. they're like they see their phone ringing and it's like. It's so funny that that's become the last thing that people use it for, actually making phone calls, and they're like, what's wrong? What's up? What's up? Oh, it's yeah, like, this... Can uh, you just text us? <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's 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 really weird. You know, you might you might be at the studio, and, you, you know, you'll get... I'll get... I'll get... Sometimes I'll get an email about something that's actually really quite urgent. Like, you know, I'm at the front door. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And, and you're thinking... We've got a phone number. Oh, Is it? Would that not be easier? Instead of assuming that I'll get I'll get the email immediately, it's it's, it's really interesting that that our our the psychology now alongside email is that you expect to reply within a within a few well within a few hours. Oh. That, that's quite alarming. Of, yeah, yeah. That's, we've got where we've ended up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So there's a silent, I mean, the, the, the world of, I mean, when, when Chemical Underground started back in 95 or whatever, we, we literally had, we, we lived, Paul and I lived in our, our very first flat on Cartside Street and we had a, a room and kitchen, so there wasn't even a separate bedroom. And in, in the kitchen there was, um, so there were these bed recesses in both rooms um, and in, in the bed recess in the kitchen, there was a big table, and that was where Chemical Underground started. And we had a fax machine with a phone, and that was, I mean, all the early Delgado's contracts with Beggar's Banquet and things like that are all on fading fax paper now. Because <laughs> they're have over 20. The we still Have we still got the fax machine? No, we don't have the fax I machine. I don't, I don't that, know why. That, that should have been part of the exhibition at ah, the, the National yeah, yeah, Museum. Absolutely. But no, it was everything, everything was, everything was phone-led because it had to be the only, it was fax and phone-led. And so if something was happening with regards to tour, with ha- with regards to radio, I mean, for, okay, for the, first of all, the music industry was a lot more vibrant, mm-hmm. I would argue, um, then than it is now. There was, it was culturally more significant. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And if you if you ventured into being a musician, the opportunities were broader and and more easily accessed. Um, and so the, the, there was it, it was an exciting place to be, you know, in in whatever your office was, whether it be a bed recess or eventually whether it be an actual, um, you know, high you know leased premises, which we were lucky enough to be able to afford for a few years from the mid nineties. But now, you know, you can be in a bustling office and all that people are doing is emailing each other. Mm. And yeah. every, everybody's silent. And it, it's a really weird situation. And there's so much homework in now, which is understandable and sustainable, better for, you know, better that we travel less. I get all that. But I think that whole, give or take the, the nightmare of office politics, which I know is an absolutely horrible thing for a lot of people, but that that environment of... I'd, I'd, a group of people in a room making something happen where there's, there's there's noise and there's people on the phone, that was really exciting. And everything seems to have completely changed now. You know, everything's... People are in their own houses, they're emailing each other, and there's the odd phone call. And yeah. it feels so different. Let's, let's not discount the modern horror of Zoom calls and Microsoft Teams I've as well. I've managed to pretty much avoid Zoom, which, which I'm really quite proud of. You should be, because it was... <laughs> I much prefer the phone. Yeah, um, I think it was, I think it was our generation um, that turned against phone calls, millennials, because it became like a MSN messenger stopped the house phone call for coming <laughs> AOL and all that. Like, do you want to come out and play? No, I'll just chat to you on MSN. Yeah, um, my favourite thing about MSN messenger was um, people's usernames being uh, really. Uh, fraught lyrics from their favourite songs. Mine was very emo. <laughs> very emo indeed. My email was ITZ Chester. Two people, <laughs> two people called me Chester at school, so I was it's Chester. <laughs> uh, very cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm slightly I'm slightly too old for emo to have hit me at that. Um, age. I remember coding my MySpace so that when people came on to it, make damn sure by taking back Sunday would play against the black image. Like the backdrop was black and my hair over one eye, like very, very emotional in my MySpace. I, I mean, I'm so sad that I've yet to see your um, my, MySpace profile photo. Mine? Mm. I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> I lost it. It's just Did you? <laughs> MySpace, that was that. Is that not the first death of a social media platform that we've all kind of witnessed? Yeah, Bebo was Bebo after MySpace. Yeah, Bebo was after. Uh, I think what was it? Was it Friends? What was it called? Friend Reunited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was the first one to. Oh, that cark sounds it. like Poff. Plenty of fish. Friends <laughs> Reunited. Are you on the Poff? <laughs> From what I could see, like Friends Reunited was just like, oh, do you remember Mister So and So who taught biology? Yeah. He's been arrested. Just for the record, none of my biology teachers were ever arrested for anything, as far as I'm aware. If you're enjoying this podcast, or would like to incentivize us to get better at it, head over to our Patreon. 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 100% Patreon. Patreon page. Become a patron of the podcast. Head to patreon.com forward slash S-D-T-M-A That is patreon.com forward slash S-D-T-M-A 
And what does that stand for, David? Still doing the music, eh? Wow. Seamless stuff. So, if you can chuck us a few quid a month, that'll really help us to produce and make this podcast. But if you can't afford that, you can listen for free. We are living in a hellish dystopia after all. We have some kind of standard quickfire ones that we <laughs> we go through with everyone, but we've got a very specific one that we've uh, asked Paul oh. already, and we're just looking for you to kind of corroborate the answer. Oh, right. Is this like Mr and Mrs? No, not at all. No, oh, no, no. Okay. But it can be if you, uh, if, if you want to go to... <laughs> <laughs> Paul said this thing that you do drives him absolutely mental. Everything. <laughs> um, have you... Ever met Pedro Delgado? No. It's a match. You okay, guys, it's a match. Well done. Oh, okay. You guys are married. It's what do we win? What do we win? <laughs> Our eternal love yeah. and oh. affection. No toaster then. Uh, oh. No, we need, to get, we need to get Alan and Stuart on, though, just to make absolutely sure that none of you are lying before we oh, can okay. give out the prize. Oh, right. Nice. <laughs> the prize. Um, what is your worst experience at motorway services? It's either a giggle of this is such a dumb question or actually something It's terrible. a trauma response. Uh, okay, I think I literally vomited over a petrol pump after a support and pavement in Paris. Uh, Great alliteration as well. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, that, thank you. That was completely natural, unrehearsed. Yeah, yeah, um, we supported um, pavement in Paris, uh, in France, in France. We did about four or five shows and one of them was in Paris and we were so excited and so just so excited that, of course, you know, we came off stage and got utterly, utterly wrecked. Um, <laughs> you know, waking up under a table type of thing, that, that oh, type of thing. Yeah. We, waking up in a doorway on a random Paris street, that sur, type of thing. Sur la table. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Paul, I seem to remember, he... He actually, I think he puked out the window of the bus. I waited until I was outside the bus and puked over the the, um, the, the petrol pump. That is genuinely probably got to be one of the worst experiences, yeah. I hope for a while after. You know if you've, like, eaten something and then you're ill, you can't eat that thing? Mm. I hope <laughs> refilling vehicles was difficult for you. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> right. The smell of, the smell oh. of diesel. Uh-huh. <laughs> it sets me off every time. Um, so... Did did you have to you know go and get a, a wet wipe to, to or did I, you just I doubt I doubt I had the presence of mind <laughs> to be honest yeah I honestly I think I probably just scrambled my way back on are, are you all still wanted in France for like <laughs> stealing petrol just well you... we're we're probably wanted by a, a, one of the ferry companies after the crossing I don't know if you if you saw Lost in France that that that, that film that kind of celebrated the is that the one that, that you thought died on. Well, um, we, we, well, ah, yeah, we thought someone had gone overboard, um, uh, but he was, this particular individual was just, was just, had been sleeping in a toilet. Yeah. Oh. Sorry, I'll bleep that name. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely wasn't. (laughs) Um, but yeah, yeah, we, we were in Lost in, the film in Lost in France, I think it was 96, 97 or 97, 98, it's one of them. Um, we were... We basically were invited over to France, to Moron, 
uh, to play our very, very first international gig and it was just the most exciting thing and we did that and that was amazing but the next year there was loads of us invited over um, Arab Strat, Mogwai, um, Delgados, Magoo, um, the Corellia um, with Alex Capranus from Franz Ferdinand and all of us just descended, Adam Hubbard, you know, all of us just literally descended on, 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 on this small part of the north of France and we were so badly behaved on the ferry over that um, that the, the police almost refused his entry at the other end because we'd been chucking furniture over into the sea. Um, what? Yeah, 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 we'd actually, and we were snorting uh, spirits through a straw into the, the top of our nose. Oh, you know, fair stuff, play. Yeah, know, uh, so, light stuff. Then. I know, uh-huh. stuff. Yeah, Good for just, hay fever. Yeah. But um, it, was, it, was, it was a bit chaotic and we all were almost refused entry into the country at all um, until David, the wonderful David Susan, who is still one of our best friends, uh, who was the organiser of the festival and has since gone on to be a really, really quite successful chef. He 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 basically talked the the transport police into letting us in. This horde of of drunken, hungover Scottish musicians just limping off this ferry, and uh, and he and he, ma- he managed. I think I think I think David David told us a story about the fact that we were all just on a line, and our luggage was just in front of us. We all just looked utterly dishevelled and broken, and the transport police are being convinced to let us in. <laughs> to France to go and play this festival. How long is that crossing? Long enough. I mean, it was it was long enough for carnage, you know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> quite I don't a long even time. think it's it's quite a small window for carnage, <laughs> to be honest. Well, no, it wasn't Dover Cali though. Oh, okay, oh, right. right. No, it okay, wasn't okay. Dover Cali. It was to Brittany. You see? Right, okay, so okay. it was a, it was a much longer crossing. Okay, much longer crossing. Yeah. No, no, honestly, I mean, it wasn't It wasn't a speed chaos, it was... I thought you guys were like, right, we've got four hours, let's see <laughs> how much damage we can oh, do. Oh, well, four hours would still be plenty. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, like it's about an hour and 50 done. minutes, uh-huh. and that's, I was really impressed if you got mm. absolutely, you know, wasted enough to start uh, doing some feng shui overboard. In no, that it, was, it was there was definitely um, a Brittany crossing, so it was much longer. Longer. Yeah. Fair play. <laughs> yeah. Just got a wonderful, like... Um, just got a wonderful image of you, like uh, managing to tear one of those bolted down tables <laughs> up and fling it over. Perhaps that's why they are bolted down now. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. In my head. It's like the scene from Titanic where he's pulling up a, a bench to break into. <laughs> let's not. Let's cut that. Titanic was a very different thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess that leads us naturally into a kind of a, like have you ever had something go so horribly wrong uh, on tour that it's almost funny but has briefly made you consider giving up music entirely oh um <laughs> you're like when have I Sorry. not <laughs> actually so the actually the In Search of Harperfield tour which was, I mean, actually a really, really lovely, lovely tour at, at the end of the day. But the, because there had been a really lovely reaction at Six Music and I, and I was getting quite a lot of radio play and Parks and Recreation had been playlisted and it was getting played all the time. And I turned up to the UK shows with, with a certain amount of optimism because, to be quite honest, I've never, I've never had a huge audience live. It's, it's always been a wee bit of a struggle and I turned up at uh, the York show, at the first show, 
and the pre-sale was pretty horrendous. And at that point, when I learned about the pre-sale is, because I mean, honestly, pre-sales and ticket sales are my absolute nemesis. I absolutely hate it. I don't, I, I almost feel like just can, can we please just fast forward to the show because the show is a bit that's fun, but the waiting for it and being told by a disappointed promoter how many tickets you've sold is not fun. I mean, it's exactly the opposite of fun. So I get to the York show. I find out that the pre-sale is, is much, much lower than, than any of us expected. And I, I literally have to just find the dressing room and shut the door and I, and I, and I start to cry mm-hmm. because it's, it's just a crushing disappointment that you can have an album which was so well-reviewed, so well-received critically and like a highlight, I suppose, of my entire career, including Delgado's. And yet knowing that it's still so impossible and difficult to actually reach people and get them to respond mm-hmm. and come out and I don't know why that is I think it's because <clears throat> to be a solo artist following a band is a very hard thing to do to you don't carry all of that support for the band you're no longer part of a gang it's a very very different thing and not very many people who were into the the former band will follow you because they move on and they the it's just not it's not a given that, that they will follow you. Um, and you have to, in a way, start again. And it's extremely hard to do that, without, especially these days. Um, so it feels like with every album, actually, you know, it feels like you're having to build again, almost from, from, from the beginning. Um, so that, that was terribly difficult because I was driving, I was tour managing, I was, there was no sound engineer, everything was on my shoulders, I suppose, and that was, that was difficult. But then the show itself was great, and after that, I think you you, you just you you accept that. Look, don't don't punish the people that came, and that's 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 an absolutely vital yeah vital vital thing to remember. Don't be a dick and play in a bad mood to the fifteen or twenty or thirty people who actually came out. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. In in those shows that haven't sold as well because because. Who the hell knows why? It's about communication. It's about the promoter's ability to reach people. And sometimes it just doesn't really work very well. Yeah. So it was quite a big adjustment going from being in a band to being a solo artist. Um, yeah. So was that, was that like a kind of a natural step, like when the Delgados disbanded, that you were like, right, well, I'll now be a solo artist? Or was there like a period of mourning almost? of the? Oh, yeah. I mean, goodness, you know, this was... This was um, the start of 2005. We had just um, moved house, Paul and I, to where we are now in September 2004. And for that, <clears throat> that six-month period, if you like, from that September to, to, the, to the March, if you like, of, of 2005, <clears throat> we went through the whole promotion of the last album, Universal Audio, its associated tours, and then came out the other end knowing that the band was splitting up and that I just I just I just had a period I had a period of, of a few months where I was utterly distraught. I just did not know what the future held. Mm-hmm. Ben, our son, was was only two. Um Paul immediately knew that he was gonna have to really start working on Chem nineteen in the studio and developing his career as a producer because this this was his full time occupation now. And so we decided to rebuild um, Chem 19 in a different premises. 
and I was I was terrified of this risk because there was an awful lot of money involved, and I was in a, I was in a pretty bad way at that point. But at the same time, I knew that there was interest from uh, 4AD or Beggar's Banquet to to put out a solo record of mine. So I got in touch with them and and got the ball rolling and uh, and went down to London to chat about a solo record. But um, my head was up my arse and, and I didn't really know what I, what I wanted to sound like. I think the first album, um, Watch the Fireworks, was a, a slightly difficult affair of wanting to sound like a band while being a solo artist. Yeah. And Paul still played the drums, um, but ev- everyone else, personnel, if you like, in the band was different to Dolgaro's. And that was, of course, essential because I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I mean, if I've got me and Paul, that's half the Delgado's core band. Mm-hmm. I had to make sure that there were some other folks in there to just diversify the sound. And then, of course, as soon as we went to play live, Paul was no longer really involved, and, and I moved over to, to you know, different drummers. Um, and it was it was a really really difficult thing to do. There was huge pressure from the record label to because K- Katie Dunstall had just done incredibly well with a record at that point, and I think I think they were. I think I think they just kind of it was that really lazy kind of expectation of you know Scottish um, singer songwriter bang surely you're gonna get playlisted on Wogan you know is that not about to happen no <laughs> so it's that kind of expectation but no I'm an indie artist and forever an indie artist and that's kind of how it would seem. <clears throat> so was that the was that the main kind of difference you felt going from you know being on your own successful. And respected indie label to 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 four AD like the change in expectations and suddenly those expectations kind of been out of your control I guess. Um, oh look, I mean look, the, the the any record company is 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 driven by trying to sell as many records as they can. Uh, Chemical Underground is 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 no exception to that. We we have to. It's just an economic kind of sim- simple fact yeah. that in order to continue to do the thing you do and pay the wages that you might pay, you have to try and make enough money to enable all this to the wheels to keep turning. But I do find that, that traditional bigger record companies tend to work in a in a in a with m- maybe with less heart sometimes, with less thought, um, more of a kind of a dispassionate point of view. So <clears throat> you'll you'll I mean there were there were there were it felt like there were committee meetings over single releases and, and artwork and things like that that involved too many heads and so you would end up with a with a with a compromised decision a lot. Um and and so you've got all this all this press and promo and adverts and really big press agents being thrown at something and then realising that you're still an indie artist and and in a way that's what the press expect you to be and if you try and do something different. I mean I think I was criticised a wee bit for that first record in it sounding like it was produced in such a manner that it might be looking for a mainstream kind of in or success. I find all these things to be quite annoying because at the end of the day, all that anyone, all that any artist is ever really trying to do is to make the record that they want to make at the time and hope that hope that it reaches as many people as possible. And then you get criticism sometimes for what selling out or for yeah. trying to be trying to be successful I mean come on that's kind of what all of us want to do um as long as it's in our own terms musically um so that's 
that was a difficult one. But I also, to be completely fair, I don't think I had found the sound that that was to become mine and for me to feel much more comfortable with. I think that took records two and three to find that eventually. Um, so record one was very much a kind of passing through moment, leaving a band and becoming a solo artist. And album one was a transition album, there's no doubt about it. It's a journey. <laughs> Having found your sound and settling being a solo artist and everything that comes with that, you're now faced with going back out with the Delgados. It's almost full circle. Mm -hmm. How how do you feel about that? I mean, at the moment, we're going through the songs, just the four of us, the mm -hmm. core, the core band. Um, <clears throat> and it's it's really, I think, very slowly we're beginning to understand again what the songs are. Um, 20, 20 years or almost 20 years on, 17, 18 years on, I'm looking at them and thinking, wow, yeah, these are, these are, these are pretty good. You know, like from songs, songwriting point of view, the, the, the funny thing is that we didn't know really what we were doing, except, except we knew enough. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's a really, really interesting thing, that you can be in your mid-twenties, having never studied music, none of us, and picking up an instrument that you've never really played before. That's in Paul and Stuart's case. As our Twitter bio says, you know, four guitarists in a room, <laughs> two of them were promoted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so right. <laughs> so so to the to the to the rhythm section, Paul and Stuart had never really played these instruments before. We'd all we were all guitarists. Um and then we start writing songs and you listen to these and now that I've studied music a little bit, I kinda look back at these songs and think, Wow, there's there's modulation in here, there's 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 time signature changes, there's um there's there's really, really um involved melodic ideas and development and I didn't we we didn't know what any of that was called at the time but we were doing it anyway which in a way makes a mockery of studying it later on because all I've done is give it vocabulary mm -hmm. yeah that's all literally all I've done so that's dead interesting that's a bit of a lesson there you know music like music doesn't necessarily need an education but if you have surrounded yourself with listening to music from a kid being being a child up to whenever you start that's an education in itself. Yeah. And that's why bands hold a really, really unique kind of position in, in the arena, if you like, of, of writing, because bands are flung in a room together with all of the characters and personalities involved, push and pull, arguments, tensions, um, and not necessarily too much kindness, but a very, a will to make something exciting and important and vital for that group of people. And lo and behold, you know, you can you can end up writing some music that, that you're all extremely proud of, which gels you together um, and absolutely transcends all of the band arguments and the tensions and all of those things until, well, until it is too much and you can't really do it anymore, which is what happened in the mid the mid noughties. Um, so that's fascinating to look back at these songs and to think, wow, we we were learning so fast 
It was a really steep learning curve yeah. in those the late nineties, you know. Recently, Emma and I were at a, a mutual friend's wedding, and I was chatting to both you and Paul separately, and I found it quite interesting that one of our conversations we were chatting about the album club, mm. and you were learning guitar parts, and you'd said to me that you kind of get in the room and people were maybe playing bits, and you were kind of rewriting parts for yourself like like just picking it up and this fits and I like this and learning new riffs and then I had a separate conversation with Paul who was chatting to me uh, about going back out with the Delgados and he was saying to me about picking up drums again and he was discussing how basically he wanted a couple of lessons um, and he wanted a a signature sound like if somebody were to say you know play 50 50 people hitting that same snare drum that's Paul and I felt like you both had this it was like a return to an instrument kind of thing or maybe like the setting or who you're playing with and just both I don't know finding that sound I found it really really interesting because you were both like approaching things I don't know, it was like really organic and really fresh and I was kind of like, God I feel like I've totally plateaued at base maybe I should just put it down and then come back to it or just go in and find parts away from like learning things I just, I don't know the conversations were really interesting and then of course there was my favourite subject which is talking about tour buses <laughs> <laughs> which I love the tour bus chat so much, but I don't know. I'm really excited for you guys. I can't wait to see the shows. I'm going to go and see a couple. Um, and I think that whole process will be fascinating, getting back in a room after, what, 17 years? Yeah. Are you, are you approaching the tracks differently? Like, or are you learning them, how you played them? Well, we, we, had, we had a funny, a, a kind of funny thing happened the other day there. We were playing and... Um, all you need is hate um, um, and you know there's this there's this big fat guitar solo in the chorus which is great you know I really really like it we can't remember who wrote it we can't remember who played it <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I'm I'm kind of like finding my getting my fingers around this solo but I'm singing backing vocals with Alan as well and we're in the rehearsal room and I'm going this is really, this is tricky. This doesn't feel, I can't remember how I did this. And then we, we find that we've got these uh, these live recordings from way back in the day, St Andrews in the Square, Lemon Tree Aberdeen, you know, St Andrews in the Square in Glasgow, <coughs> and uh, Lemon Tree up in Aberdeen. And we listened back to them, and nobody played the solo live. <laughs> We never, we never played it. <laughs> and that is the way to approach solo. <laughs> yeah, so that, that is the way to approach uh -huh. difficult things. Don't play them. Don't do them. Don't play them live. But here's me, and I'm learning how to play the solo and sing the backing vocal and thinking, we're all just looking at each other thinking, why didn't we do this at the time? This sounds much better. So I think we are, as the four of us, this is the first time the four of us have actually been in a room and we've been doing this for quite a few months now, getting together to just play the songs, even though we have to imagine some of the strings, imagine some of the keyboard parts. Mm -hmm. If we can play these songs 
as well as we can as a four-piece without the reliance on these other instruments. We, we kind of have to maybe remind ourselves that we were a band that were a four-piece mm-hmm. rather than a band that was a ten-piece, which we were live. We still need to be able to do our job as a four-piece. And maybe we began to forget that some at some points during the Delgado's live, like Delgado's um, career, because we were so engrossed in arrangements and elaborate, involved um, arrangements in the studio. And then it became obligatory, if you like, for us to be able to replicate that live yep. so that people got the full experience. Yeah, we, w- we will be taking out a full band again with strings and with, you know, flute and keys and things like that. But at the same time, these days, given how difficult it is to kind of tour and everything's just harder, there's less tour support because record companies aren't necessarily, that well, they're not really giving it out anymore because they don't necessarily make the money back through record sales because, hey, record sales, what are they? Yeah. Don't really exist anymore. It's all streaming. It's not very much money. So the bottom line is that tours have to pay for themselves. And if that's the case, then I think Delgado's as a band needs to also be able to exist as a four-piece, which is a really interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that solo in that chorus with me playing backing vocals or, or singing backing vocals, yeah, I'm going to have to be able to do that. And and it's it's dead interesting because as a solo artist, you you find yourself always singing whilst playing your guitar. And so in a way you become... Yes, you're still a guitarist, and yes, there's still a huge amount of interest and and um, you know attention paid, but not in the same way as if you are playing guitar for a band where sometimes you're just not singing at all. Then you get to be a guitarist yeah. who can who can actually totally concentrate on what you can do with that instrument without the distraction or without the added job of singing at the same time, which which does you know make some things more difficult. Or impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's um, that's a lovely thing to be able to just have the freedom to just play guitar sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I hate when people are like sing and play bass, David. I'm joking. I was doing that last night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yeah. can, I can hear the cogs going in my brain. But that is in, like interesting when you were discussing the. When you get in the studio and you get so excited with parts and how parts work with other moving factors within a track, and then how does that correlate live? Because you, I've heard you have that discussion. You definitely approached catastrophe hits with a much more band, yeah, like sense. Well, I, I, I was a singer to kick things off when I was a teenager, and I liked singing and. Um, I actually learned how to play the guitar as well, just as a means to an end, because um, you can't write songs just a cappella, because uh, I'm not in an <laughs> Ivy League American college. Uh, so uh, I, I'd, I'd never describe myself as a guitarist. I'm like an accident, accidental guitarist. But what happened with the first Broken Chanter record was we went to we went to uh, this big uh, house in Donegal um, and me, Audrey and Gal, the engineer, producer, uh, we played bass on the record as well. We set up for two weeks and essentially like, we'd start the day with a, a demo um, that I would then kind of like shout chords through, which didn't help Audrey because <laughs> she explained the drums, but like... <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> no F F <laughs> floor Tom. Um, so we'd like kind of like we'd do that bit in the start of the day, and then we'd go out for a walk, um, like in one of the local beaches or something, to clear our heads, have lunch, come back, and then listen to it, and then kind of develop it a bit more. Uh, and we did that well, pretty much a song every day, and then we dumped two because they sounded too much like my old band. Um, but the problem I had with that was that when we came to play it live. It was kind of like this big, almost atmospheric kind of sweeping thing with strings and um, quite electronic arrangements in some places. And it's just, it was too expensive to recreate live. So almost like we did it the wrong way around. So we it got rewritten for a four-piece band or a five-piece band. And um, with the second Broken Chanter record, I was like, I said to Paul in the pre-production stuff when I was sending demos and also before, just before we went to the studio, I was like, this needs to be something that sounds like it's just actually the people in the room playing it. Like, I don't want to be too reliant on production in the studio. I want it to be something that can be just like, here it is on the record and here it is on the stage. Um, because, you know, as you say, I'm like, tours need to pay for themselves and if you start taking out loads of folk on a stage with you, then it quickly becomes unaffordable. Yeah, I mean that, that. I think as a solo artist, the the the, the major difference is flexibility. Um, so, you know, In Search of Harperfield was a pretty expansive record in its sound, and there were a lot of strings, string ideas on it, um, and full band at points. Well, most of the time, in fact, I suppose. But I still, at one point, I think about three or four years ago, maybe maybe more, decided that I had to be able to play as a solo duo, trio, mm. full band, and then if you want the full buna and you can pay for it, mm-hmm. then absolutely, I'll, I'll bring strings when I can mm. afford it. But every single one of those options, right down to solo, where it's just me and a guitar, right up to the full, you know, however many people, eight, nine, has to become possible if you want to be able to just play live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because your budget can be as little as a few hundred quid or it can be as much as you know well you can if it's a festival and it's a big festival you you might find that you're offered enough to be able to consider strings especially if it's close to home you don't have to pay for accommodation all of these things come into play um and so with Delgado's suddenly you're in a situation where that is no longer the case there's going to be four of us there's going to be five of us there's going to be six of us Mm -hmm. there's going to be ten of us there's going to be whatever um, and we we need to we need to work out in the modern industry. We need to work out what that means now. That's not not to talk about myself again, but that like that's kind of having seen you play in various guises. Like that was one of the things that I wanted to do um, as as a solo artist was to be able to be it's still me on my own. It's me as a duo. It's me as a three piece, four piece, and then a six piece um, for like the bigger shows and stuff um, I think that the way things are these days that you need to be able to be go yes I actually can do that even if your band isn't available but you can yeah. do a representation of it yeah because it's your name on the front of the record and that kind of changes everything you've, you've, you've got the you've got the freedom to choose how you represent your songs and everyone who plays around you it's up to you whether you feel you can you can actually justify that afford it all of these things but it's so lovely to play with people on stage it's so lovely to tour with people some of the 
best times I've had musically have been with the the, the people that I play with at the moment. Um, we don't see each other very much because I haven't played very much recently, but when I do, it's just like last night, just seeing Pete, absolutely brilliant, just lovely. Um, and it is, it's a different relationship with when it's your own record and you're having, yeah, you're having to take on all of that pressure being a solo artist, but it's a, it's a, it, it's, it's, there, there are clean lines involved, you know, you're, you're, you're playing with your session musicians and, and with your musicians and, and, and you get to choose when you want them to join you and when you don't. And in, 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 in a way, it's, it's, it's easier to organise, it's easier to just exist like that with that freedom. As soon as you're in a band again, you've got, you've got all of these personalities and, and people you know, who, who will all want to do things in a slightly different way and that, that can be quite stressful, but at the same time, wonderful to be part of a band again because it's a shared experience and you're with, you're with very, very good, good friends who you've, you've just experienced so much with. So there is that, yeah. Are you excited for the show? Oh, I am. Yeah, I mean, as long as I know, I know what I'm like. I, the nerves, the nerves come and go before, but I mean, if you're well prepared, then hopefully the days that we play will hopefully just be enjoyed rather than absolute, you know, nervous kind of. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm really looking forward to them. Yeah, as long as we're prepared. Yeah. <laughs> You will be. Yeah, <laughs> we will be. You could, will be. I mean, you could step out onto yeah. those stages just now and do it. Probably could, yeah. That would that be soloing. <laughs> 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 What is a huge musical high, a joyous musical bubble <laughs> that has been immediately punctured? <laughs> like, I guess you're always equating this to like just what day to day life bringing you back down from something. Well, yeah, uh-huh. but I mean, like most musicians juggle a number, a number of different roles, a number of different jobs. I mean, you know, you've been uh, a studio manager, you've worked for the label as well. You know, you've been a mother you know there's there's lots and lots of different competing important things um so i guess yeah that's it doesn't have to be something necessarily dramatic that brings you back down to earth with a bump this is kind of a horrible question as well actually it's like tell us about something really good that was you know pretty much ruined by something shite <laughs> oh there's probably many 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 um oh versions of this I would probably be able to come up with a much, much better one if I was given, if if I if I had some time to think. Which, oh man. Sorry, I mean, I, normally I send the questions on. It's just um, no, I've had no. COVID. Yeah, and, no, listen, um, don't, don't don't worry about it. Absolutely. Um, oh my goodness, my goodness, my goodness. Um, oh, do you know? Do you know what? It's it's really dull. It's so dull. I mean. Ah, oh. that's fine. Give us the quotidian. Um, yesterday morning, I was, I was really, you know, right. So when you've got a show, it's show day from the moment you wake up to the moment you go back to bed, it's show day, and everything yeah. to do with that day is absolutely centered on and focused on the fact that you're going to play a gig. Uh-huh. Now, because it's a gig in Glasgow. I'm already in Glasgow, I don't have to travel far, so therefore I don't need to leave until, say, half three. So what do I do with that time beforehand? Well, I end up sitting and checking my emails. And I end up looking at this email to do with the studio. And uh, 
No, that's too dull. I'm not. I'm going to stop. Now. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not going any further. I wish I could think of something more. Don't worry about it. To, to be I honest, I wish I could think of something. We need to rephrase this as well because it, it's it's a bit. I don't know. There's something slightly. There's something slightly clunky about it, and also there's something slightly almost seedily exploitative about it. I I prefer. I like this one because I feel like people's geezer tears. People's answers on this have have varied, but I've always found them really interesting. We've been asking most people what the biggest achievement that you put on your CV is versus what's your personal proudest achievement, and do they differ? Because like, you you know you know the thing that everyone puts up front on their like press releases and stuff. Like play Glastonbury, but is that actually Doesn't. your proudest achievement within the music industry or your musical career? My word, um, I, 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 oh. I think I, it was a it was a real highlight for the Delgados to be nominated for the the Mercury uh, Prize. That was that was great. It was it was yeah, it was televised. I think, and um, I think I probably made a fanny of myself um, being slightly drunk. Um, can't remember, but. Um, but at the same, Alan didn't come down, which was, which was, in a way, to be expected because Alan sometimes wouldn't want to necessarily engage with with things that were, well, just the whole competition element of it probably mm. bridled, you know, with him a little bit, um, because it's it's a curious thing, isn't it, to 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 kind of get involved in in a competition, or a or a judging kind of contest. These things. I think we have an odd relationship with them that people, yes, people are interested. Oh, who's been nominated this year? Uh, what is it? It's 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 clearly an absolutely brilliant, brilliant thing to hear your name announced as as the winner of one of these things. It's it's um. But in a way, you know, it's 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 just it's it's great to be nominated as well because you kind of I think what it is is you feel as if attention is suddenly being brought, focus has been brought when you've put in so much work so far and you think, wow, that's great, we're being seen, that's that's brilliant. But at the same time, you hate yourself for wanting it in the first place. Mm. But we're all only human. Yeah. And and it's a wonderful thing to know that people are, are more people are listening than might have otherwise. So it's a great it's a great opportunity for more exposure. Um but at the same time achievement wise Thing, I don't know, just just things like supporting some of your favourite bands, you know, like like that time that we that we did actually. I mean, we we were we were really lucky as 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 the band at the beginning. We supported Elastica. We, we supported the Wedding Present right at the beginning. We supported you know Pavement. Um, all of these things were absolutely wonderful. We went out with Doves, um, and a lot of these things are are great um, because there's. Quite often, less expectation for a support act, and you get a chance to play in front of absolutely hundreds and thousands of people. Yeah, mm. and then you get to come off early and enjoy the ride or sooner. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's always a plus. Is that not always a plus? Totally. <laughs> Clean break by eight pm. Where's the ride up? Yeah, so that's always good. Um, but yeah, it's 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 true that that those 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 supposed CV highlights come with a huge amount of stress. Mm. 
Mm. Um, I mean, it was it was great to to play things like um, oh, the John Peel's Meltdown Festival mm-hmm. um, and and be be one of the bands he he curated to play. That was that was fantastic. There are many 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 highlights. Um, being just just the support from John Peel, I would say, was was absolutely was an ever present strength that we drew from. Because with every single album that came out, we would know that he was he was there as a supporter. Even though I do I do think that he did admit that the Great Eastern was maybe a bit too grown up for him, as you know, or maybe it was hate, was was becoming quite grown up for him. Mm. You know, and, and and I think he loved the the unbridled kind of um, perhaps energy and, and chaos that came with Domestique and less so Peloton. Mm-hmm. I think he he was absolutely definitely with us with those albums, and then he he maybe it was I don't know I think I think he, he he likened it to his kids growing up or something like that when he when he kind of heard heard later albums that we were we were making a different type of music at that point. But but John John Peel's um, support was was ever an ever kind of important aspect when we felt that things were a struggle which often in the industry, you, you sometimes you feel that you're not being heard. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. And I love it because it, it always, I think, people feel the need, I think, as with any industry in your CV, you hit the jargon and the big, mm-hmm. you know, glass and brain whatnot have done this, the instantly attention-grabbing things, whereas most people that we've spoken to feel that it will be like a, a record they've put out that there's most... No matter the reception of it, actually, the achievement of getting that record from thought to out there within an audience is their biggest or proudest achievement. And it's a shame that that isn't what we feel we can list at the top of our musical CVs. Yeah, it's it's almost as if oh no, it's not enough to just put out a record, but can you? But what did they do? You what, know, oh, it's, uh-huh. it's, yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. We did play Glastonbury a couple of times, but um, I think I almost Alan and I almost got heat stroke crossing from one part to the other side to the other. Yeah, it's absolutely bloody enormous. It's huge. I know. It's they 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 really don't tell you about all of the walking. No, they don't. (laughs) You get your steps in, but no, that's that was a lovely answer. Oh yeah, we've played some amazing shows in Spain. I mean, um, Primavera, things like that. uh, you know, singing singing to an audience that was bigger than the amount of records that we'd sold, and yet they all knew the lyrics. Mm-hmm. So great, yeah. you've you've got Spain. I think they they loved their bootleg CDs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely adorable. <laughs> so you would you would be selling you'd be selling like a few hundred CDs, and then playing in front of like a few thousand at a, a festival, and everyone knows the words, and you're thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> Before the days of streaming. <laughs> so we, we, we had some really, really fantastic um, Spanish shows because is it, is, it, is, it, is it as simple as the fact that we have a Spanish name? Is it, I mean, really, is it that simple? <laughs> Probably. Probably. Yeah. The Thins. <laughs> it's the Thins. Oh, home, home taping, killing music. That's pretty, pretty rare. I did a show with Joseph in... LA and the front row had uh, homemade merch 
Nice. Which I loved. Oh, I thought wow. it was, you know, Joseph t-shirts that were like quite close to the ones that he was oh, selling. Fantastic. And he was just like, I love this. Oh, like, wow. that you would go to that effort. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Buy a t-shirt though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I remember as a teenager cutting out a stencil and getting a can of spray paint and stuff. And then obviously that was a single use t-shirt because it was... Uh, Toxic and uh, quite quite abrasive on you the skin. You're high as astral. I enjoyed that gig. Uh-huh. Hello. <laughs> Got a rash now though. Uh-huh. Yeah, black chest. <laughs> <laughs> really thick, dark chest here. Yeah. <laughs> Age. <laughs> <It's helpful. laughs> oh, I love it. Oh. What are your plans for your new record? To get to get it mixed. To get it mixed. Um, it's oh, you've mentioned the studio. Um, yes, I do help manage the studio. In fact, I manage the studio. There's no there's no help. Um, and and that that means that that my that I that I don't really ever schedule my own records because if something else comes in, I'll I'll book it so that Paul can't. Not not so that Paul can't work in mine, but just it ends up that Paul can't work on mine. Because, frankly, we've had a pretty hard couple of years with, obviously, with everything that's happened. We're recovering now, you know, there's more there's more people coming into the studio again. It looks as if it's going to be okay. But it's, um, you still, as a business, don't really want to be turning people away just because I want to finish an album. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's how it feels sometimes. So I tend to put myself bottom of the pile. Uh, but I do believe that my name has popped up in a few weeks over August, so perhaps we're going to actually try and get it finished, even though we started it two years ago. Paul's just after telling me that he's uh, got a wee, a wee holiday in August. <laughs> 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 no, oh, you don't. Oh well. Fantastic. <laughs> well, um, thank you. Thank yeah, you very thank much. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, oh, listen, thank you very much. That was a pleasure, uh, and I'm fairly certain it recorded. So. Oh well, that's a, that's a pl- that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, if you do have to re-record it, I'll come up with better answers. This podcast was recorded for Glad Radio at the Deep End in Glasgow, Scotland and edited by me, David McGregor. Today's episode was written by me with additional material by Charlotte Printer. All music composed by me and all. This episode was sponsored by the Extinction Level Comet that is currently heading for Earth as it wishes to assure you that it has heard your and the many other prayers for its arrival. For God's sake. <laughs> Not going to inquire too much as to why there's some man-sized tissues in here, but... But it's anti-back too, so yeah, it's all, it's, it's all good. good. Radio. على الأثير الرقمي وحسب الطلب نحن Glad Radio. Цифровом формате и по запросу мы Glad Radio. Questa era una produzione Glad Radio. You're listening to a Glad Radio podcast. To listen to more and to get involved, visit Glad Radio.